probably you, like most people around the world, would recognize the historical existence of Jesus Christ. Some would consider him to be a great teacher, others an influential prophet of old. But the real question that all of us will be asked to answer upon the end of this life is, do we believe that Jesus was God as he absolutely claimed to be? In this next teaching on the Gospel of John, Pastor Steve looks at eight of the great I am statements that Jesus Christ makes that unmistakably express his claim to divinity as the Son of God. John said that I need no introduction. So I'll just tell you, I am Connie Troxell's husband. <laughs> And I have loved being her husband for almost, no it is, for 47 years, for 47 years. And I plan on staying her husband as long as God allows us to do that. Amen. Well, I want to first of all express my gratitude to Pastor Roger for allowing me the opportunity again. It's been almost a year since I was here last. You may say, well, what have you been doing with yourself the last year? Uh, we have a ministry called Shepherd Support Incorporated. Some of our board members belong here to the church. And uh, we, uh, we love doing what we're doing. We do pastors' wives' conferences in foreign countries. Uh, since we were here last year, we had a conference in India where we had 300 young pastors that I was able to take for five days, for five, six hours a day, and teach them how to study the Bible, how to uh, prepare messages, and how to go through the book of Ephesians to preach expositionally through a Bible book. It was a wonderful time. In March, we went to Zambia. We had 500 pastors and wives. Stuart and Leanne Henry went with us and uh, just had a great time. Uh, in Zambia. I'll say more about that in a moment. Then in, uh, in July, we were in Malawi, and uh, Mike and Belinda McCarthy went with us. A number of others from, from uh, this area went with us to that conference and just had another uh, great time, about 500, 600 pastors and wives that are gathered there. Um, and these are places we'll probably go back to in the next couple of years. The one that's coming up yet this year is this next weekend. We solicit your prayers. It's going to be a mini-conference down in Acuna, which is on the other side of Del Rio, across the border. Pray for safety as we're there. Lots of young pastors that are coming in who uh, have no training, but they have house churches, and God has blessed them, and they're even outgrowing their house churches, and they're, they're crying for training, for help. And so this will be a first time, and we have Rick and Diana Lowe. You know Pastor Rick here, and Diana is my assistant in our Shepherd Support Ministry. They're going to be translating, also doing some of the teaching, so it's going to be a fun time. So pray for us on Friday and Saturday in that conference. Coming up this next year, we have uh, in February, we'll be going back to Rwanda with a team here from Wayside that will also be going, along with Rander and Darlene. Draper, and we're excited about that uh, opportunity to minister together there. Uh, then in, uh, let's see, in April we're going to be in Peru, a first time conference in Peru in that particular area that will involve all of the uh, various denominations coming together. That's what we stipulate in these conferences, that we want husbands and wives together and we want it to be cross-denominational. And then we will be in uh, Uganda the end of August for a week for a conference. And then we're going to be in Thailand in November. All of that's subject to God's will, but uh, that's the plan. And so we appreciate your prayers. 
Now, in between those two things, we have um, uh, those four things, I should say. We have a trip to Israel scheduled next summer from June the 5th to the 20th. Maybe my last, maybe our last. It'll be number seven. That's the perfect number, you know. So uh, if you have any interest in going to Israel with us, we have brochures on the, available in the back. If you don't get a brochure because we're limited this morning, you can go on shepherdsupport.org, shepherds with two S's in the middle, shepherds spelled H-E-R-D, not H-A-R-D, H-E-R-D-S, support.org, and uh, you can pull it up. You can, uh, all the information is there. I also have my book, Going the Distance, available in the back, and I can sign it for you this morning. You didn't run in the rock and roll marathon here in San Antonio, so you can alleviate your guilt by buying that book <laughs> and uh, working your way through it. You can say, yes, life is a marathon. It's not a sprint, and, and you can finish. You know, I figured out that I have run almost 700 marathons in my lifetime. I just haven't done it all at once. But I've been running since 1975. Anyway, with that said, I want you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John. And where I want to go with this this morning is a little bit strange, but it's been an area where God's been working in my life the last several months especially. When we were uh, headed for Zambia, i got to tell you this story because funny things can happen when you're traveling. And we were going to Zambia with Stuart and Leanne, Henry, Connie, and I uh, to, to have this conference. And we flew to Atlanta, and then we had a little bit of a layover there. And then we were to catch a plane nonstop to Johannesburg, South Africa, 16 hours. And in that time, we, uh, we, we twice had taxied out to the runway, came back because the pilot didn't like a sound that he heard in the plane. And we were relieved after thinking 16 hours over the Atlantic Ocean, it was kind of nice to know the pilot was sensitive to his equipment. And so we're waiting in the gate to go, didn't know when they were going to call us to get on another plane. And I'm typing away on my, my Blackberry. I'm typing a message. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I ought to go use the facilities just in case they call us. And so I went to the restrooms, and I'm still typing away on my Blackberry. And I walk around the corner, and I see this M-E-N. What I didn't see was the W-O on the front of it. And I turned and I walked in there and I'm typing away on my Blackberry. Now it must look like I'm in there taking pictures. I don't know. I'm typing away on my Blackberry, totally oblivious. Connie understands that better than others. Totally oblivious to who's standing around me and all wants to look. And here's a Muslim woman standing right there in front of me and a couple other ladies. And I said, oh, I am so sorry. I mean, I couldn't say enough. I couldn't apologize enough. And I turned to back out and a woman came in behind me. She said, because of you, I went into the men's room. Now, I got to tell you, I got out of there as fast as I could. I went back to the gate. I had a red shirt on. I wish I could have changed clothes. I thought any moment the security guys are going to come and cart me away and question me for being in the women's room. On the way back from, from Malawi, God put me next to a young Muslim who I think in some ways has permanently changed my life. Because I'm sitting on the aisle, he's sitting in the center seat, and then there's the window seat. And this young Muslim who's 36 years of age, I had 16 hours with him nonstop, 
I had already profiled him as a terrorist when he sat down next to me. I mean, I'm serious. I looked at him. He had the terrorist look. <laughs> and uh, pulled his Quran out, began to read the Quran. I knew he was a terrorist. I said, uh, is this your first trip to America? He said, yes, it is. And I thought, yeah, it's going to be our last, too. I can see that. Uh, he was praying. He was reading the Quran. We engaged in conversation. Out of those 16 hours, we probably talked intensely about Islam and Christianity and the differences between Muhammad and Christ for probably four hours. And I want to take you on a journey. He, he taught me some things. I learned some things about Islam and realized that I am not as prepared for the Muslims as I ought to be. And probably most of you here this morning, if you're honest about it, you would say the same. And yet the Muslims are coming, folks. They're coming. And we need to know how to reach them. We need to know what they believe. More importantly, we need to know what we believe. And that we have the Christ who when you compare Muhammad and Jesus, there's absolutely no comparison. Because Jesus was without sin. Jesus performed miracles. Everything you read about Muhammad, Muhammad never proclaimed to perform any miracles, nor did anyone ever say he performed any miracles. He was married to 11 different women, had 11 wives. One, he married as young as eight years of age. There was nothing miraculous about the life of Muhammad. And if somehow you can just get them to compare the two, Jesus with Muhammad, there's absolutely no comparison. When I was talking with Ahmad was his name, and, and I would appreciate your prayers for this young man. Uh, he was 36 years of age, finishing his Ph.D. at the University of Victoria, flying across the Atlantic for the first time to Las Vegas. That's where he was headed in order that he might speak on something dealing with computer microchips, which was way beyond my pay grade. And so we didn't talk about that. <laughs> we talked about Jesus and Muhammad. He said, you Christians believe in three gods. And he said, the gods would never become a man. The gods would never take upon themselves human flesh. The gods would never limit themselves to being thirsty and hungry and having to relieve themselves. Oh, no, he says, Allah is so much greater than that. And I realized... The Muslims have no concept of God as Father, being able to have an intimate relationship with Him. They have no concept of that intimacy, no concept of a God of love. And that's, folks, what we have to offer people around us, a God who is greater than all, and He's transcendent and above all. And yes, He exists in three different persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but He is one God, and He is a God who loves the whole world. 
One of the things I've learned, and, and uh, I've, I've been reading a number of books that if you want to know some of these books afterwards, I, I'd be glad to share them with you. One of them is Norm Geisler's book, Answering Islam. Another is Understanding the Muslims from a Former Muslim who is now going all across America and the world proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. In his book, Joel Rosenberg, who wrote the book Inside the Revolution, 500 pages, I highly recommend it to you. He singles out what God is doing within the Muslim culture today. Inside Iran alone today, God is performing miracles. He is revealing himself personally to people who are seeking. Jesus seems to be appearing personally to these people. I know that's hard for us to understand, but when you read what's going on, in Iran today there are now 7 million Christians. And that's one reason why during the previous elections, the last few months, you saw all of the, these demonstrations in the streets. It's because there are Christians who are taking a stand, and many of them are paying the ultimate price with their lives. Out of 70 million Iranians, 7 million of them are now believers. Joel Rosenberg points out that there are basically three different types of Muslims, and this is important for us to understand. First of all, there are the 90% who are known as the Reformers. And the Reformers are those who are going to be our neighbors probably, most of them in years to come, and we're going to have them living in our neighborhoods, and we need to reach out to these Reformers. They're 90% who just want peaceful existence. They want a life for themselves. They don't want to cause disturbances. They're just quietly going about their lives. And we need to build relationships with them. We need to have them over for barbecues. Just don't offer them pork. But we need to do that. They're, they're the reformers. And 90% of the 1.3 billion Muslims are reformers. 7% are the radicals. By the way, the reformers believe that Islam is the answer, but jihad is not the way. Holy war. On the other hand, the radicals, 7%, believe that jihad is the uh, that islam is the answer and jihad is the way by force by suicide bombs 7% of the 1.3 billion muslims in the world today that means somewhere between 90 million and 100 million radicals who become terrorists are out there in our world not a very comforting thought 3%, the other 3% are the revivalists, the three R's, revivalists. The revivalists are those who have become Christians, and they are zealous in their witness for Christ. You'll read some of the exploits of these brave men and women who are risking their lives and seeing God do great things. When I finish my conversation with Ahmad, and this gets in me into my text this morning, I finished my conversation with Ahmad, and I said, Ahmad, I want to ask you to do three things. I ask you to do one thing, but I want you to ask three questions. I said, I want you to read through the Gospel of John. 
Because, you see, they accept the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. They also accept the Psalms, the writing of David's, and they accept the Gospels, but they believe the Gospels have been corrupted. But most of them have never studied the Gospels. And Muhammad, back in the 600s A.D., uh, Muhammad actually encouraged his followers to read the Gospels. So you're being true to Muhammad when you say, read the Gospels. And many Muslims are coming to Christ today just through reading the Gospel of Mark, Luke, or John primarily. Mark because it is full of action. It centers on the miracles of Jesus. It goes from one miracle to another, and it's an exciting book for a Muslim to read. Or Luke because Luke is written to the Gentiles, and Luke presents Jesus in his humanness, in his manhood. And many, many of the Muslims are coming to Christ through reading the Gospel of Luke. And of course the Gospel of John is special because John was written with the whole world in mind. And John, at the very end of his book, John says many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, but these have been written in order that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. You see, Ahmad said... Jesus was a great prophet, but he never said he was the Son of God. And I said, oh, no, Ahmad, that's not true. And I began to take him on a journey through the Gospel of John that I want to take you on this morning. And I focus primarily on the great I Am statements of Jesus. Because, you see, the great I Am statements of Jesus, you can't miss it. Jesus was saying, I am God. I am ego ami. I am and no one else is God. And it goes back to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14 when God was calling Moses to lead the people out of Israel. And Moses is objecting and he says, but God, when I go to them and the leaders of the children of Israel say, who, who has sent you? What is his name? What do I say to them? And God said, Yahweh said, I am has sent me to you. That's what you tell them. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. And I will be what you need. I, Moses, I will be whatever you need to get the people out of the land of Egypt, through the land of the wilderness, and into the land of Canaan. I, I, will, be, uh, I will be what you need. And folks, he's the same God today, I tell you. He's the same God today. He took upon himself human flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1, verse 14. Yes, Jesus said, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. How then can you say, show us the Father? He said, I'm showing you the Father. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the very bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He brought Him out into the open, John 1, verse 18. And uh, so I, I want to take you on a little trip through these I Am statements. There's a, quite a number of them in John, but I want to single out eight of them this morning. You may want to write these down in your notes so that you can use them when you have that opportunity to take someone further. It's important to build a relationship, and especially if they're neighbors, you've got to build relationships. I had 16 hours to build a relationship with Ahmad. And uh, I, I said, by the way, I didn't finish what I was going to say. I said, Ahmad, here's what I want you to do. I want you to read through the Gospel of John. 
And ask yourself three questions. Number one, who did Jesus proclaim himself to be? Number two, did he prove it by the miracles he performed? And number three, if so, what does that demand from my life? He promised me he'd do that. Now, I haven't heard from him yet. He has my email. I haven't heard from him. But you never know. You never know what God's going to do in his life. The first great I am statement of Jesus occurs in John chapter John chapter 6, where Jesus is talking about being the bread of life. And the, the, the Jews, they come to him and they say, what sign will you show us? So what are you going to do? To, what are you going to perform in order that we might believe you? Our fathers, they ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, now what are you going to do? What are you going to show us? And Jesus said, your fathers did not give you the bread from heaven. Or Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. John 6, 35. He said, I am, I am and no one else is the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger again. Whoever, thir- whoever believes in me will never thirst again. And then he goes on later to say, whoever eats of me and drinks of, eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood. In other words, uh, we, we, we feed on Christ. We draw our life from Christ. Because you see, bread in that society, even today, bread in those Middle Eastern cultures is the very basic staple in life. And it's true in much of Africa as well. One of the things we really enjoy in these conferences, and we've heard from the folks after we've come back, and they say, the fact that you provided plenty of food for us, they eat better when they come to our conferences. Thanks to many of you who are giving to the ministry, they eat better when they come to our conferences than they'll ever eat at home. I just love to see them eating, I, just more than they could, more than they could ever envision. Now, for us, we can take it or leave it with bread. Some of you are probably on diets where you you're not even on bread. But for them, bread is an absolutely essential of life. And that's why when the devil, at the beginning of Jesus' temptations, at the end of the 40 days, and Jesus is hungry, and the devil approaches him, and he says, if you are the Son of God, then command that these stones become bread. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, physical bread, because that's how they were living, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus says, feed on me, abide in me, feed on my words. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will make myself real to him. In John 14, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, I love this, where it's following the adulterous woman who was brought to him. And and Jesus, at the end, he says, where have all of your accusers gone? Does no one accuse you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Just go your way and sin no more. And then he turned to the Jews and he said, I am, John 8, verse 12, I am and no one else is the light of the world. 
Whoever believes in me will never again walk in darkness. Isn't that great? We live in a dark world today. We live in a confusing world. We live in the midst of chaos, and things are only going to get more chaotic as we get closer to the end. But Jesus has said, I am the light of the world. Now, now here's, here's the background to this. It was during the Feast of the Tabernacles, and annually the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated in order to commemorate the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and how the people lived in tents. And Jesus, no doubt, pointed up to the temple, and the temple would have been all lit up. The candelabras would, would have been lit up, and lights would have been everywhere to celebrate this festivity. And Jesus builds on that, and he says, I am the real light of the world. I, I am, and no one else is the light of the world. He who follows me shall never again walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then in John chapter 9 and verse 4, he said, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world, meaning he was going to leave, and his disciples would become the light of the world. Folks, we are the light of the world. How brightly is your light shining to your neighbors and your co-workers and the people around you because we are the only lights that they're going to have and we need to allow him to light us up and set us on fire. John chapter 8 and verse 12. Another one's in John chapter 8 towards the end of the past the chapter there in verse 56 where Jesus said to the Jews, and I love this, it's almost like he's toying with them, you know, all the way through John 8 where he says, you are of your father, the devil, the desires of your father you're going to do. Uh, he was a murderer from the beginning. Whenever you speak, you speak from your own resources, you speak a lie. He was the father of lies. You're just simply acting like your father, the devil. And then he gets towards the end and he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said, wait a minute, you're not yet 50 years of age, and have you seen Abraham? Oh, I love this. Jesus came back and he said, before Abraham was, I am. Ego of me, I am and no one else is. I precede Abraham. I'm older than Abraham. I am the eternal one. I am the son of God. And they knew what he was saying. And I pointed that out to Ahmad. Why did they pick up stones to stone him? Because they were accusing him of blasphemy. That he, being a man, was making himself out to be God. Ahmad just sat there and didn't ask a lot of questions. But he looked at the text as I showed it to him. John chapter 10, twice Jesus says, I am. First of all, he says, I am the door. Now, in that day there were sheepfolds, and the sheepfolds at night, we, we've seen this in the Middle East, where shepherds will have different flocks of sheep, and they'll all take them into this single enclosure, and there will be one man, the doorkeeper they call him, who will guard the sheep that night, and the shepherds will go to their places of rest. They'll come back in the morning, and they, the doorkeeper will recognize... The, the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus said, he who climbs up any other way, the same as the thief and the robber, but he who go, enters by way of the door, he's the true shepherd. And he said, when he goes in, he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out and they follow him. And he says, I am the door. I, I am the door for the sheep. There's no other way to get into the sheepfold except by by him. I am the door. By me, if any man enters, he will be saved, and he will go in and out, and he will find plenty of pasture. John 10, verse 9 and 10. 
He'll go in and out and find plenty of pasture to feed on, to feed on, feeding on Christ. That's what he's saying. Plenty of food, plenty of food, and abundance. You'll never run out. Then in verse 15, he says, verses 11 through 15, he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I am and no one else is the good shepherd. There are no other shepherds. We, we're all under shepherds, elders and pastors. And, and by the way, I just want to say, because one of the things that I'm finding and one of the things we're doing is we're spending a lot of time with pastors. Uh, this year, I've, I've averaged two to three pastors a week that I meet with that are just discouraged, need to be encouraged. 1,500 pastors a month are dropping out of the ministry in the U.S. Right when we need them the most, 1,500 per month are dropping out of the ministry. Studies by Focus on the Family by uh, George Barna indicate that 70% of the pastors in America today are discouraged even to the point of depression. And it's not just the pastors, it's the elders, it's church leaders, because they're overwhelmed with the problems that seem to be coming their way. I believe a lot of it can be the work of the enemy. 50% of the pastors have been surveyed and they've been asked the question, if you could leave the ministry and make just as much money doing something else, how many of you would take that option? 50% of them say, I would. But it behooves pastors and elders to be good shepherds, to provide for the sheep, to protect the sheep. When the sheep stray, you go out and find the sheep. You, you look for them. You bring them back. You, you're given to that. You, and, and, and pastors and elders, you just got to stay focused. That's what we're about. It's not about all this administration. I realize some of it has to be done. It's about caring for people. It's about loving people. It's about building relationships with people, providing for their needs, protecting them. That's what a shepherd does. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, even to the point that I'm willing to lay down my life for the sheep. Wow. I'm willing to lay down my life for the sheep. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. It's been given to me by my father. That's precisely what he did. And where he leads his people in John chapter 10, verse 28, uh, verse 27 and 28, he said, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Now, I really focused on these verses with Ahmad because they have no assurance of eternal life. Jesus said, they shall never perish, neither shall any man ever pluck them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Because you see, in Islam, there's never any assurance of salvation except for one violent act among the radicals. If you're willing to strip an, uh, a bomb on your belt, and you're willing to go in and, or a car bomb or something else and take your own life, then you are assured of two things. You're assured of three things. Number one, you will enter into the presence of Allah. Number two, you'll have seven. If you're a guy, I don't know what they offer the women. I've never noted, never seen that. But to a guy, 72 doe-eyed virgins variously described in heaven are awaiting the suicide bomber. But what you may not know is they're also promised that they can take 70 relatives with them to heaven. 70. So man, if you have if you don't have much of a life in some of these Middle Eastern countries, that looks pretty good. That's a pretty good deal. Unfortunately, it's false. 
Jesus is the only one who can give eternal life. And it is eternal. It is not temporal. It is eternal life. We were not saved by good works, and we cannot lose our salvation because of bad works. It's all because of God's grace. But I'm telling you, we can be embarrassed when we stand before the Lord and have nothing to show but a self-centered life. In John chapter 11, one of my favorite passages in John 11, Lazarus had died, dear friend of Jesus. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Martha, well, both of them, they sent word, Jesus, your friend Lazarus has died. Jesus wasn't overly concerned. He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. And then later on, he tells his disciples, our friend Lazarus is asleep. And the disciples, they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. However, Jesus was speaking of his death. They said, well, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. Jesus said, I tell you plainly, Lazarus is dead. He's dead. But he said, let's go that we might wake him up. And so they're now on their way to Bethany, and Martha sends out... Martha comes out and she meets Jesus before he gets to Bethany. And you can just picture this in your mind. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now we believe, I believe, that whatever you ask of God, he'll give it to you. And Jesus said, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha said, I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection the last day. Jesus said those wonderful words, I am and no one else is. Verse 25, the resurrection and the life. I'm the one who gives life. I'm the one who sustains life. He who believes in me, even though he was dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me, he will never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And he proved it by raising Lazarus from the dead. I want to tell you, we got to get to that point in our culture where we're not afraid of dying. People ask us, aren't you afraid of dying? And we're not saying this to be more spiritual. If God wants to take us out in an airplane accident, if he wants to take us out in Israel next year, you don't want to go with us, that's okay. <laughs> but let me tell you, it might be better to get out now than to face what's coming down the road. And we have had a few close calls in the last couple of years that we wondered maybe this was our time. I can honestly say, if he takes me today, if he takes me before I finish, it may not be pleasant for you, but I'm telling you, I'll be with the Lord. And so will you if you're ready to go. I love that story about the old country doctor who made the house calls, and he was making his rounds one day, and here was this cancer patient who was getting very close to the end, and he looks into the doctor's eyes, and he says, Doc, he said, tell me, what's beyond the other side? What's beyond the veil? The doctor wasn't quite sure how to respond, and all at once, bam, the front door bolted open, and in came this doctor's big dog. And the dog, the doctor immediately said, you know, he said, think of my dog. Somehow the dog got out of the car, came in. The door wasn't latched. He said, think of my dog. My dog didn't know what was on the other side of that door. But he knew that his master was in here. And that's all he needed to know. 
We know that our master is there. That's all we need to know. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Listen, if the suicide bombers are promised all these things, and yet they're deceived, we know we are not deceived because Jesus said, I am, and no one else is. Then you get to John chapter 14 and verses 1 through 6. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. He's about to leave them, you see, and it's a troubling time. There's an uncertainty facing the future like we have today. And he said, in my Father's house are many mansions. In other words, there's plenty of room in my Father's house. If it were not so, you, uh, told you so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare place for you. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Jesus came down to this planet to prepare us for heaven. Jesus left this planet to go back to the Father to prepare heaven for us. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus didn't just point the direction and say, there's the way. No, he said, I, I, I am the way. I am the truth. We live in a pluralistic society where we're to be politically correct, we're to be tolerant. Folks, if we ever buy into that and compromise, we are finished. Because there's only one way, there's only one truth, there's only one who can give us life, there's only one who is life, and that's Jesus. Truth is narrow in every science. Truth is narrow in mathematics. Truth is narrow when I go to make a phone call. If I get one digit wrong, I'm not going to reach the party I'm trying to reach. One little digit, yet we think we can approach God any old way that we want to approach Him. Computers, man how frustrating they are. Somebody will give me their email and I'll go home and I've read one little letter. I mean, just one letter out of all those letters. That's, that's the only one I got wrong. And it comes back undeliverable. And let me tell you, you try to reach it God any other way than through Jesus, it comes back undeliverable. <laughs> You're not going to make it. Jesus said, if you'd known me, you'd have known my Father also. From now on, you know him, you've seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be sufficient for us. Jesus said, have I been so long with you, Philip, and yet you don't, and do not know? If you have seen me, then you've seen the Father. Wow. You cannot deny he was God's son. One final one, I bring it to a conclusion. Jesus, in John chapter 15, he's now winding his way towards Gethsemane, towards across the brook Kidron. And perhaps he looked up, number one, the, the hills were terraced, and you'll see that when you go to Israel. They're, they're terraced with grapevines, vineyards, olive trees. Uh, grapevines are common in Israel. And Jesus might have been pointing back to the great vine that was on the wall of Jerusalem because it was this national symbol of Israel. It goes back to Isaiah chapter 5 where God says to Israel, I, I have called you, I've planted you as a choice vine and I wanted to get good fruit out of you but all I've gotten is sour grapes. Jesus now says, I am the true vine, no one else is. I, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears fruit, 
that does not bear fruit, he, I think the correct translation there is he, he lifts it up. He lifts it up. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. I am no one else is the vine. Whoever abides in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. You want a fruitful life? You want to be used from here on until God takes you home? You abide in Christ. You develop that intimate relationship with Jesus. You offer a hungry world around us Jesus. Forget about all the gimmickry that's being offered in churches today. Folks, we have something far greater than that. We have someone far greater than that. We have Jesus, and without him we can do nothing. And I want to tell you, Jesus can do some incredible things because he is the same great I am that he was then. He's the same great I am who took the children of Israel through the wilderness. Jesus can do all things. Nothing is impossible with him. And if he wants us to build facilities here, he can provide it without us having to go into debt. He can do anything if we're willing to trust him. He can use your life in ways that you've never dreamed if you're willing to trust him. Now, I forgot one of my important object lessons, and that was a dirty old glove I have. And I just picture me holding a glove up here this morning. And that glove has all the components of a hand. It looks like a hand. It looks like it ought to be able to do the work of a hand. But it has absolutely no power. But I can put my hand into that glove, and all at once that glove comes alive, and that glove can do some incredible things because it's got life in it. It's got life in it. How about you? How about you? Is his life in you? I want us to bow our heads in prayer this morning. Maybe someone here is like Ahmad. You've had a lot of questions. Maybe you've come to that point you already realize that Jesus is the answer. He is the great I am. There is no other. He wants to forgive you of sin, just like he did the woman who was taken in adultery. The Muslims have no concept of original sin, by the way, and that's one of the issues. They see no need for Jesus to have come and died because they have no concept of original sin. They believe it's just good deeds versus bad deeds. And if your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, you're lost. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you're saved. And some of us here this morning may be thinking just like that. No, it's all by grace. We're sinners. We desperately need a Savior. And that's why he came. Maybe this morning, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm just going to ask you to just quietly say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are who you said you are. And you are my Savior. And I'm trusting you from this moment on. Not trusting my own good works, but trusting you and you alone. Maybe for some of us here this morning, it's just being reminded of the importance of abiding in the one who is the great I am. 
your life has stalled out, maybe you're without a job, you've got issues going on that have just forced you to take your eyes off of Christ and not seeing him as your great provider, your good shepherd who laid down his life for you. And this morning, God's just saying, just refocus, refocus. Put me back where I belong in your mind. And so this morning we're saying, Lord Jesus, I do want to abide in you. I do want your life to be flowing through me. In my weakness, you are strong. And I'm trusting you to do great things through me, in me and through me in the days to come. Amen. He is Lord. Let's sing it together. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God bless you. Thank you. I've enjoyed being here again this year. Thanks.